Hello, my name's James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. What is populism? Does it threaten the foundations of our democracy? Does Donald Trump's defeat represent its high point globally? And what should Democrats do next? In today's episode, we discuss these questions and much more with Professor Steve Levitsky. Steve is Professor of Government at Harvard University and a leading scholar on populism. In Steve's recent best-selling book, How Democracies Die, he sets out the formula for populism and why he believes it poses a direct threat to democracies. Steve also spoke to me about why he's changed his view on the need for Democrats to reform US democracy. Steve joined us ahead of his appearance at a special two-day conference being held digitally here at King's, entitled Populism in Latin America and Beyond. There is still time to check out the programme and register for tickets. We've included the details in the show notes. Please do take a look. It's a really fantastic programme being hosted by the King's Brazil Institute. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us reach more people. Steve spoke to me from his home in Boston, and I started by asking how things are looking there. There's a sense of some optimism, at least in blue state United States, for the first time in uh, a very long time. So uh, still winter, still a pandemic, but feels like we're going in the right direction. Yes, the, the, the vaccine news seems to be seems to be finally a sign of some, something positive, uh, both here and in the US. Yeah, we, you know, we removed our authoritarian president, too, so it's been, been a good couple of months. Well, that's a good segue, because I want to start with the United States uh, when we're talking about populism. And I want to talk about that standard bearer for populism, I guess, Donald Trump. Um, You you say in your book, uh, How Democracies Die, um, and I quote, think of democracy as a game that we want to keep playing indefinitely. So to kick us off, how close did America come to blowing the final whistle? Well, at least established democracies in the last century, have rarely died permanently. They have uh, plunged into the abyss for a very long period of time. Chile for uh, almost a generation, for example. I'm not sure I would characterize it as, as a final whistle. I think in, the, in a worst case scenario, there, there might have been a, a constitutional rupture. Um, there, there is a scenario in which this election could have been stolen. Um, but it's unlikely that that would have permanently ended democracy in the United States. The pro-democratic forces, the opposition forces, opposition to Trump are strong enough that it, things would have been very unstable, potentially very violent. But it, it's not clear it would have been the end, the end whistle. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is you, you mentioned in that book that the, the importance of norms. And we've heard a lot about that, particularly in, in the time that Donald Trump was in office that many of the things that anchored American democracy, the foundations, weren't necessarily things that were contained within the Constitution. There are two that you mention in particular, you call them mutual toleration and institutional forbearance. What are these norms and why are they so important in terms of a democracy like the United States? I think mutual toleration is is simpler and is is really critical to any democracy, which is a public recognition of the legitimacy of your rivals. It's a recognition both when speaking privately to one's followers and when speaking publicly that your rivals, much as you may disagree with them, as much as you may really dislike them, 
that they are loyal citizens who are have every right, every legitimate right to be out there doing politics, competing against us. And if they win an election, they have the right to govern us. In other words, we don't treat our rivals as enemies. We don't treat our rivals as existential threats. As soon as we do, then we begin to um, find justifications to sort of use any means necessary to thwart them, right? If the other side are subversive, if the other side are traitors, if the other side are criminals, uh, then then we need to pull out all the stops to prevent them from winning an election or taking power, and that gets democracy in trouble very quickly. Forbearance is is a little more complicated. It's it's simply a um, the non exercise of a legal right. It is an it's an act of deliberate self restraint, and that's not something we think about very much in politics. A deliberate underutilization of of power, but in in the U.S. democracy, and, and I, I think the U.K. as well where the constitutional rules of the game are really not very elaborate. They're very old, they're relatively stable, but the U.S. Constitution is a very simple document. It doesn't spell out contingencies for you know, what to do in situation X, Y, and Z. And we have depended, we didn't realize this until recently, but we've depended for much of our history on politicians simply not deploying certain tools that they actually legally, constitutionally could deploy. Um, just to take a simple example, or two simple examples, one was presidential reelection. Um, before 1951, presidents could be reelected indefinitely. They could be president for life, like Daniel Ortega and Nicaragua is today. But for 150 years, no president um, sought a third term. It was just a, a, a norm of restraint that began with George Washington's decision to, to retire after two terms. Another really basic, simple example is the use of the presidential pardon. The founders stuck it in there because it was something that was sort of existed, I guess, under under the, the monarchy. But for, for most of U.S. history, presidents knew that you couldn't abuse that, right? That, that means the president can pardon anybody that she wants at any time. And so they, the president could order his or her pinch people to, to commit crimes and then pardon. The president could potentially pardon himself or herself. And so that, that's a rule that could easily, easily be abused if not exercised with respect to it. Turns out that a lot of democratic institutions, particularly in a complex system of checks and balances like the United States, if politicians don't agree to exercise restraint in deploying their institutional power, things collapse into institutional warfare in a a hurry. They begin to look more like the politics of uh, off and on in, in countries like Argentina, Ecuador, and Peru. You know, as your book lays out, I mean, it's historical. It talks about some of those examples, FDR running and, and, and the, the changes that came out of him running for a third term. Uh, it talks about McCarthyism and, and, and what, that, what that led to. And I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you is whether we should just simply see this as Trump. Because I guess if, we, if it's just about Trump, then he's lost. So great, fantastic. But, and I'm not going to say problem solved, but, but to some extent, democracy is safe. But, but how much do the, have these norms been worn away over time? And I'm not just thinking, you, you know, Merrick Garland and the failure of the Republican Senate to pass, to approve Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland, which was, I guess, a breach of a norm. And you hark back to earlier examples and, and perhaps Newt Gingrich and his, his approach to the way in which he, he approached working with Bill Clinton was quite new and, uh, and successful in many ways electorally for the Republicans. Has this been a long time coming? And does it go beyond just Donald Trump? 
Yeah, the answer I'm quite certain is yes, it has been a long time coming and it goes well beyond Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was a unique figure. And I think there's not a single Republican politician, even the most extreme right wing ones, who would have crossed as many lines as Donald Trump crossed. I don't think any other U.S. politician would have rejected the results of the 2020 election, would have you know, fomented the, the assault on the Capitol the way he did. So Trump was, was uniquely bad and uniquely dangerous. But Trump was as much a symptom as, as, a, as a cause of our problem. And this is something we, we argue in the book, and I've become I think, more convinced of it over the years, because, first of all, what's driving the norm erosion, you pointed to examples that have come way before Trump, is this intense polarization of our, of our politics. It's the fact that uh, the parties have become so polarized, particularly the Republican Party. It's not a, a, a symmetric polarization in the United States. The Republican Party has become an extremist party that is, uh, by some measures, ideologically more extreme than some European far-right parties. This is not a, it used to be, but it's not a traditional center-right party like the Tories anymore. It's a different beast. It's, it's become a very radicalized party. And that's how Trump gets the nomination in the first place. And that accelerated under Trump. And I think it's accelerated after Trump. Any of us who had the illusion that um, that Trump's defeat, which is very important, but that his defeat would somehow bring the Republicans back into the fold as a, as a, as a normal conservative party, you know, that illusion has been smashed very quickly. The, the, the party has lined up behind Trump. And uh, in fact, the, the bulk of the party was, was quite complicit with Trump's effort to overturn the, the election. So this is a, a problem that goes way beyond Trump. It's rooted in really intense polarization on both sides, but primarily driven by the radicalization of the Republican Party. In the latter part of the 20th century, it's difficult. We, we focus kind of on, on the Gingrich era. I don't think Gingrich caused it either. I think Gingrich was one of the first politicians who kind of sensed the changing winds. He sensed that a, a more aggressive, norm-breaking behavior would play well with the Republican base. And he was right. He was an entrepreneur, and others followed him. That, that hasn't changed. So the underlying conditions, the underlying polarization, the underlying radicalization of the Republican Party does not change with Donald Trump's departure from the White House. It is very important for a democracy anytime you remove somebody with authoritarian instincts from a position of power. That's always a positive. But the underlying problems have not gone away. It's fascinating. I think it was it CPAC this week, the the big gathering of conservative leaders, or kind of pitching themselves, perhaps even already for the for the nomination uh, in the next presidential cycle. You know, the thing that seemed to unify them was was not policy, but but a kind of hatred of the left, or you know, the the, the bogeyman of the left, which is perhaps a dangerous place to be if your politics is defined by who you hate as opposed to what you want to build. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans have become a reactionary party in, I think, the fullest sense of the, the word. The United States has undergone, as, as all Western democracies have, some far-reaching changes in the last half century. We've become more secular, we've become more urban, we've become more unequal. And importantly, we've become much more ethnically diverse and more ethnically egalitarian. We have taken major steps towards what Daniel and I call multiracial democracy. That's a far cry from the from the democracy for the from the political system that existed for the first 200 years of our country's history, uh, which essentially excluded non-white citizens from from politics. And that process has generated, I think, a sense of existential threat 
among many in the Republican base. And so, you know, you can call it socialism or call it the left. I don't think that's quite accurate. It, there is a, a, a move towards a, a more globalized, cosmopolitan and egalitarian society that a good chunk of our country is, is rebelling against. And, and I guess how much, because the, now the Democrats, are, of course, they, they have con- control of, of the, the main branches of government. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a victory in itself. But long term, is this a real challenge for the Democratic Party? Because I guess if you're the party that believes that government can do things or that you're the party that believes that it's important that government does things, is there a kind of asymmetry of vulnerability for the Democrats in that they need the system to work? And in a sense, the Republicans don't, that their philosophy that that came out of Reaganism or, or that has been developed over time is basically an anti-government philosophy. And that that's taken to a point where actually if democracy or the functions of government don't work, it, it, it's actually positive for your electoral chances. It, it, whereas the Democrats, they, they need it to work. Yeah, there is certainly an asymmetry and there's certainly a danger. Usually political parties have some kind of an enlightened self-interest in not wrecking the house that they're occupying because they expect to be back in four, eight, 12 years. And so you don't want to dynamite the country because your constituents care about the country and you might be back at the helm. And so I, I think there's a big difference between, I mean, I think there was a, there were a lot of costs to not only Reagan's position or Reaganism's position that, you know, the best government is no government. The, the, the worst thing in the world is, is to, to have the, the government step in. That ideology obviously took hold well, in the UK as well and to the point where the Democrats stopped contesting that point of view for a generation. And that was damaging. But the Republican position today is, is way beyond that. I, mean, I think Reagan would not recognize it. I think Thatcher would not recognize it. It is anti-establishment. It's anti-system. It's anti-institution. And um, I, I honestly think the Reaganites and Thatcherites of, of 1980s would be aghast. Some of them are at what they're seeing in the Republican Party. So it is, yes, the, the, the fact that the Republicans are willing to blow things up, uh, I'm not, I'm speaking literally, I'm figuratively willing to blow things up, makes, makes it harder to govern. I mean, it means that the Democrats are sort of increasingly inheriting a bigger mess each time, which even if they manage to clean up the mess, may end up being costly, may require raising taxes, it may require austerity, uh, it may require things that, that make the government unpopular and lead to their, their electoral defeat. So I think you're right. I also think the Republicans run a risk as well, though. I mean, I don't know how long they can live politically by just being Molotov cocktail throwers, uh, just blowing things up and delivering. Because all they're delivering their base is symbolic politics, you know, hugging the flag and, you know, denouncing Antifa. And it's, it's all symbolic politics. It's, and you, you obviously cannot eat symbolic politics. And um, there is a, a, a large part of the Republican Party constituency that's not doing terribly well economically. And at some point, you know, jobs, infrastructure, education, healthcare, stability might matter to them or to some of them or enough of them that it becomes very hard to win elections for the Republicans. So this virtually nihilistic strategy, I wish I were exaggerating, but it's hard to it's hard to come up with another term, is, I think, electorally very risky for the Republican. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, and you, you mentioned there, that the, the, the changing nature of the American 
electorate and just how diverse the country is becoming. You point out that some of these norms that liberals held dear were, were norms in a time when when the electorate was, if not totally white, it was it was very much controlled by white power brokers. And that and that's changing. And perhaps the Republican Party's unwillingness, certainly at the moment, or certainly the Trump faction to engage with that is part of the issue. Yes. I mean, that I think ultimately, Daniel, I think that the largely racial, racial and cultural divide that was generated by the slow incorporation of non-white, non-Christian voters into the electorate is ultimately driving our polarization. So the huge challenge that we face, and it's a really big one, is because we're not just going to go back to the norms of the 1950s, right? As you, as you pointed out, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to sustain norms of mutual toleration and forbearance and to underutilize your power and exercise restraint when the other guys are white Christian men just like you are. A very different world today. It's a very different world today. The other side looks different. The other side may speak different languages. They pray to a different God. The demographic, the sociological differences across our parties are quite vast. And so I, I guess I'm an optimistic soul. Ultimately, I think that we can do it. I think we can build democratic norms in a more diverse society. But it's a hell of a challenge. Yeah, it's fascinating. Reading the book, it, it did kind of remind me when thinking about Nixon and obviously Nixon and Trump have been compared because of, I guess, the corruption and their threat to democracy. But the other thing that links them is that they were outsiders in the sense of, and I realize Trump is considered an elite. He owns plenty of New York to say that he's not elite, but he, he was never kind of accepted by the elites. And, and clearly this was for him psychologically tormenting. And, and I think the same could be said of Nixon. And it's interesting that it's these two characters, these, these I guess, outsiders, at least culturally or, or kind of in class terms that posed real threats to American democracy. I think that's a, that's a great observation. Um, there, are, there are important differences between the two, though, because mm. Nixon was intent as, as, as much as he hated the elite. And, you, you know, you, you saw this in his private conversation. Publicly, he made every effort to join the elite, to work within the elite, and to work within establishment norms. So when Nixon broke norms, and when he broke rules, he did it secretly. He tried to cover it up. The, the, the horrible things that he said about Jews, about African-Americans, about journalists, about members of the establishment, he said in private. He didn't say them in public. Trump was openly populist in the sense that he very purposefully and very effectively broke these norms in order to signal to his base that he was not part of the establishment. And uh, whereas Nixon never did that, never, Nixon never went populist. He tried his whole career to earn the trust of the establishment, at least in public. And he basically did, right? He ended up having a pretty successful career. Before we move on to talk a little bit about global populism and, and perhaps a little bit about Latin America, I just sort of two kind of decisions the Democrats might have coming up. The first is court packing, which does feature in the book. And we don't know yet what sort of decisions might come through in the Supreme Court, but they may well decide on, on, on big pieces of policy that the Democrats hold dear, whether that's economic or things like healthcare or obviously Roe versus Wade. And the other is enlarging, I guess, the Electoral College or, or accepting new states or, or granting statehood to perhaps to, to fair, make, make the Electoral College more fair, the Democrats might say. These two decisions, these would be... Would they be shifts in norms? And, and are they things the Democrats should think about doing? Or, and, and in doing so, would they threaten 
the norms that that you argue underpin kind of American democracy? My thinking has evolved a little bit on this front. Um, when we wrote the book, I was quite skeptical of Democrats responding to hardball with hardball, in part because I thought there was still a lot to preserve. There were certain there there was a there was still a an infrastructure of norms that that could be preserved. There was still an establishment Republican Party that could win back the party. One could imagine to some degree a return to the status quo existing before Trump. I think that's shot to hell. I think the Republican Party is, is lost. I think that the norms that governed us in the late 20th century are have been destroyed. And that the Democrats, this is not to say that they should begin to break the rules or to, to violate norms incessantly, but the Democrats, we're in a new place. And the Democrats need to consider a wide range of options because this is a very dangerous place. And you pointed to a, a couple of ways. We're in a very dangerous place in the sense that the Republicans are becoming an anti-system party. They're, they're, they are potentially really an authoritarian party. And our counter-majoritarian institutions, our electoral system, our court system, pretty heavily favor rural parties, parties based in sparsely populated territories. And they give right now the Republican Party a considerable advantage in the Senate, in Electoral College, in state legislatures. And because the Senate approves Supreme Court nominees, they've got an advantage in the Supreme Court. So it is possible that, that, a, that a relatively unpopular Republican Party, a Republican Party that consistently loses the popular vote, that wins only 47% of the, of the vote, can actually wield a lot of power in the United States. And there is evidence that Republicans, not only that, that they'd be willing to use that power toward authoritarian end. I was stunned by what happened between November and January of this year in the sense that not only what, what happened on January 6th, the Trumpists and many, many Republican allies systematically explored dozens of different ways in which they could legally, constitutionally, at least in some interpretations, subvert an election by local election officials throwing out a number of votes from your opponent's stronghold on technical grounds, having a, a, a judge rule that you need to throw out a batch of votes in your rival stronghold on technical grounds, using legislatures to overturn election results or to send alternate slates of electors to the Electoral College. None of that was done. All of it was explored. All of it's on the table now. We cannot unlearn it. We cannot unsee it. And as things stand, somebody's going to be tempted to use those tools again in the future. So you've got a radical public Republican Party with a set of big institutional advantages that evidence suggests is willing to sort of cross certain red lines, not just norms, not just you know insulting journalists, but maybe overturning elections. And so democracy is at stake in the next few years. Democrats are divided about this. We're all worried. Some Democrats think that, that, the, that the risk is so great that major institutional reforms have to happen now basically to prevent the Republicans from, from winning an election, you know, 48% to 52% and bringing this authoritarianism based on minority rule. That could happen. I mean, history tells us the opposition party always wins the midterm election. It is very likely, if nothing happens, that the Republican Party will win one, if not both, of the houses in 2022. Um, we're coming out of a pandemic 
if they are and, and if they win the control of the Congress, history suggests looking at 2010 to 2016, they will do everything possible to derail, to do nothing again, nihilism, blow up the system, block every move by by Biden, even if we're coming out of a pandemic and a, and a, and a depression. That could derail Biden's presidency and then lead the Republicans back to office in 2024. It's it's quite possible that the Republicans control all three branches in 2024. This and this is a Republican Party that plausibly has, has become an authoritarian party. So there are those Democrats who say this risk is so great that we must overhaul our institutions now. We must end the filibuster. We must reform or pack the court. We must add uh, one or two states to, to the Senate to balance out the Senate and balance out the Electoral College a little bit. And certainly we need to pass voting rights legislation. Uh, there, there are others who say, yeah, it's really bad. Uh, I don't know if this, I don't know if democracy is quite at, at risk. So, you know, certainly we, we've got to support Biden. We need to, to pass this large stimulus, et cetera. But we shouldn't engage in what we've always considered norm-breaking behavior, like packing the courts, because that's just going too far. I don't know if the Democrats, in fact, I'm skeptical that the Democrats will build a consensus around the idea that they need to rapidly overhaul our institutions because of the authoritarian threat. I don't think they'll go there. I, don't, I just don't think they'll, they'll build a consensus for that. Moving on to talk about populism globally, obviously the conference coming up is going to be looking at Latin America, but also looking beyond that. One thing that's that's epitomized or, or been a big feature of Brazilian life uh, from its birth has been inequality and how that has shaped its political life. And I guess I wanted to ask about how much you think inequality um, globally in both the West and also in sort of burgeoning democracies is a key component in terms of the rise of populism and the anger towards establishment politics. Is it the issue that we need to grapple with if we are to grapple with the threat posed by populism? Yes, absolutely. I don't think it's the only factor, and I don't think it's the only factor in Latin America, but there is no question in my mind that, for the reason you allude to, that extreme inequality, particularly when it overlaps with with other demographic, other demographics like race, skin color, religion, it is a is a major cause of populism. Populism. It's, it's not every day. Uh, it's not normal that citizens will reach a point where they decide to vote out all of the existing, all of the established parties in favor of an outsider, a, a political outsider. It takes a lot of frustration and a lot of anger, which is a word that I think you appropriately used, to get most voters to vote against the entire system. And that's what populists do. Populists promise to take the entire establishment from left-wing intellectuals to right-wing business people, put them in a bag and throw them in the river give them a, a punch in the gut. It's anger that drives that. It, it's perceptions of unfairness, mistreatment, that some people have, a, have privileged access or privileged treatment and you don't. And inequality feeds that. Inequality feeds perceptions of unfairness and almost invariably leads to unfairness. I mean, you, you reach levels of extreme inequality, and we've seen this in the United States in the last few decades, the rich inevitably, no matter what rules you make, the rich almost inevitably begin to exert outsized influence in politics. And everybody knows it. And inequality reproduces itself. And all of these things generate perceptions of unfairness. And it's perceptions of unfairness that persist over time 
and a perception that none of the political parties is addressing this problem, that's what feeds populism. So one ingredient for populism, even though it takes different forms in different places, is, is inequality. I mean, one of the things reading the book and, and preparing for this episode, I was thinking, I've, I've heard Labour Party advisors and, and commentators here in the UK, they, they often say that that the Tory party play politics in easy mode because the Tory party is seen as the natural party of government, perhaps by the public, and they would argue by the media. And so they have this sort of inbuilt advantage. How much was those kind of those post, you know, fall of the Berlin Wall, those 30 years that we look back on, how much because of the growth that was involved in that period, because of the, you know, rising living standards, were we kind of playing democracy on easy mode? kind of globally? And if so, does that point to needing to go beyond simply fighting to elect people that we find perhaps liberals and or, or kind of people I find reassuring? And does it mean that we need to actually tackle and change some of the ways in which we do democracy and these established parties do democracy? Well, I think there's no question that we played democracy on easy mode uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We, we, we did it a couple of things. One, you know, we operated for around 15 years, let's say between the end of the Berlin Wall and the Iraq War. We operated under the assumption that democracy is the only game in town, that there were no real serious threats or challenges, and that really the whole world was was bound to, to become democratic. So we took liberal democracy, both in our own countries and abroad, more or less for granted, which is understandable, maybe, but you know, never a good idea. The other thing we did, though, during this period was forget about issues of inequality and redistribution. You know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the crisis of Keynesianism, the, the, the political success of Thatcherism and Reaganism left the, the center left everywhere in the West on the defensive and led the center left everywhere in the West, almost everywhere in the West, to move to the political center. This may have been it's easy in retrospect to condemn that behavior, but at, at the time it was seen as necessary to ensure political survival. The Labour Party and the Democratic Party had been out of power losing elections for a long time before Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. I don't want to make any facile condemnations, but there was a consensus for more than a generation between center-right and center-left parties that redistribution did not have to be on the agenda and that we should just let you know capitalism run its course obviously maintain a welfare state, but nobody thought seriously about using the state to seriously address some of the negative effects of capital. It was very late that we realized that we're realizing now that issues of redistribution cannot be left aside forever. So that period of letting our guard down, not only with respect to democratic institutions, but economic institutions in the 1990s, 2000s, contributed to where we are today. I think you're right. I have, I have less to say about institutional innovation Obviously, the democracies that we live under are, you know, there's some combination of 18th, 19th, and early 20th century institutions. They're mostly 19th century institutions, our parties, representative democracy, the way we elect people. It makes sense. I mean, I, I like these institutions. I think some of the core elements likely ought to remain. I think the basic institutions of civil liberties and competitive elections, I can't imagine that I don't have a very big brain, but I can't imagine a democracy that doesn't include those core features. But it makes sense, particularly at a time where pretty considerable discontent with existing democratic institutions, and certainly with 
with existing democratic elites, parties, politicians, it makes sense that we would think about innovating. I, I think political scientists who study democracy, most of us are normatively committed to democracy. I think we're guilty of having gotten fairly conservative. Like we're so intent, and this is especially true in Latin America, so intent on preserving and defending minimalist democracy, civil liberties, human rights, competitive elections, civilian control of the military, that we think very little and sometimes discourage thinking about innovations, particularly radical innovations, whether it's participatory institutions or direct democratic institutions, other forms of representation. I'm certainly not, I'm not a political philosopher. I'm not capable of, of sort of designing 21st or 22nd century democratic institutions, but it makes a lot of sense to me that both scholars and policymakers ought to be thinking about reforming our institutions. Certainly in the United States, I think where we've been really reluctant to reform institutions, right? At least on, in continental Europe, because of the wars, there was a, quite a bit of institutional innovation in the first half of the 20th century. So Western Europeans are not, for the most part, carrying around 18th century institutions. In my country, we're carrying around 18th century institutions. And some of them, some of our counter-majoritarian institutions, the Electoral College, for example, threatened to wreak havoc to erode legitimacy and maybe even kill a democracy if you don't seriously think about innovating. I have, I have two final questions. The first links America to, to Latin America, and, and perhaps also when we think about India and where it's at at the moment, which is how important is it in terms of supporting democracy in Latin America and, and perhaps in India that American democracy works and that in comparison to perhaps the Chinese and, and, Ameri- and the American economy, I should say as well. So in comparison to the Chinese model, and the Chinese state, you know, how important is that comparison going to be in terms of those countries that are perhaps at a, a crossroads? You know, they could go one of two ways. Is that is that going to be important in the next kind of two decades? For sure. It's difficult to measure the impact of a model of, of, the, of the United mm. States as, as a model. But, you know, unlike the 1990s, this period where we took everything for granted because Western style liberal democracy was the only game in town. You know, the, the major geopolitical change affecting world, global democracy in the last 20 years is the rise of serious legitimate rivals to Western liberal hegemony. And that is not going to change as much as we may wish it away. The United States is going to continue to have rivals probably for the rest of our lifetimes. So performance will matter. Not only the, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, that U.S. democracy has become dysfunctional and we elected somebody who is openly authoritarian. I think really hurt kind of soft power of the United States, the ability of the United States to serve as, as, as a model. Nobody outside of the Bolsonaro family looks at the United States in the last four years as a model. But ultimately, if, if the West is going to have even a shot at preserving a, a, a not a whole, an entirely democratic world, but a, a large democratic sphere in the world, the West has to has to work, it has to it has to grow, it needs to to thrive. I think there are underlying there are a bunch of underlying indicators that suggest that that is possible. But, you know, Western democracies have to get their shit together and deal with some pretty important issues like growing inequality, like growing ethnic, racial and cultural diversity and build sustainable 21st century multiracial democracy. And I'm not an economist. I can say very little about economic performance, but the the liberal West is not going to disappear overnight. But the degree of decline 
will be heavily influenced by long-term economic performance. If the West continues to grow at a decent rate, it will continue to be influential for decades. Obviously, if China outperforms the West dramatically, you'll see many more Indians. And finally, you mentioned there some of the challenges we face collectively as countries, but also as a planet. And I guess the biggest one we haven't mentioned is climate change. And going back in the book and reading, you know, what what's striking is that often democracy has been renewed or, or kind of institutions have been strengthened when we're faced with major challenges. And perhaps in the past, they've been wars. And I realize climate change doesn't have a definitive end. And so perhaps it's not analogous to a war and, and we can't think of it like that. But in some ways, do you think that climate change presents an opportunity for politicians like Joe Biden to seize the agenda and to set out a way that we can both perhaps recover our economies, but also demonstrate the viability of democracy for a new age? Big question. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, the just hopeful, throw, it in at, throw it in at the end. You know, just, The just... hopeful part of me uh, you know, grabs onto that and, and says, yes, I think uh, you're right that in the United States, war has been critical to sort of ending polarization and bringing together a big, diverse, often unequal country in ultimately very positive ways. I don't know whether climate change can do that. Um, I have to say, the response to the pandemic, not of all democracies, but the U.S. response to the pandemic, which was utterly dysfunctional, and it was a much more acute and short-term crisis than, obviously, the climate change, suggests to me that the way U.S. politics is configured right now, we are not equipped to respond to the climate change. We don't have a political elite capable of, first of all, uniting. And second of all, telling its citizens credibly, legitimately, that we need to make some basic short-term individual sacrifices for the good of our community, society, planet, country, any of those things, any of those collective outcomes. You know, we're not willing to keep our flipping neighbors safe by wearing a mask. And if we're not willing to wear a mask to keep, you know, our kid's teacher from dying of COVID then I'm not sure that we're in a position to ask citizens to respond to climate change. Obviously, other Western democracies showed themselves to be considerably more resilient uh, and give reason for hope. Whether it's Denmark or, or South Korea or Taiwan or New Zealand or Australia, there were democratic governments that responded very, very well. That shows that not only that democracies can respond to crisis, but maybe, maybe it could be a source of renewal. Unfortunately, I look at U.S. politics today And I think, again, we've got some fundamental house cleaning to do. We've got to get our house in order socially, politically, and institutionally before climate change can be a source of renewal. And if we don't get our house together before climate change becomes even more acute, then the outcome may be quite tragic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Steve. You're going to be, as I say, speaking as the keynote at the Populism in Latin America and Beyond conference that's happening uh, virtually at King's, joining us from Boston on the 18th and 19th of March. I think you're speaking on the 19th. We'll uh, put the details in the in the show notes so that those that want to can register. It just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.